You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here is your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I'm Coach Jen in Ocala, Florida, and you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for June 19th, 2023, episode 3207. This episode is brought to you today by World Equestrian Center. Good morning, Horse World. You have found Horses in the Morning on a Monday. You're in for an amazing horsey week of laughter, learning, and fun with Glenn and Jamie. Well, you might have guessed by now, Glenn and Jamie are traveling today. So it being Juneteenth and all, I thought I'd mash together some relevant interviews from previous episodes featuring Joy Hills, co-host of Retired Racehorse Radio, bull rider Abe Morris, and Rhoda Ferrero. She's going to tell us about the Racing's Black Pioneers exhibit at Keeneland Library. Plus, to honor all the dads out there, a list of Father's Day gifts from Jamie, sure to have you spitting out your coffee. Well, hi, Joy. Thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. You know, I find these excuses to have Joy in the show when really I just <laughs> want to hang out with Joy because I don't get to talk to her much anymore. So, <laughs> so thanks for doing this. Of course. So, uh, Joy, you know, we're, we're celebrating Juneteenth today, and mm-hmm. uh, I, it's the first year that's an official holiday. Yes. So... And I think a lot of people still don't quite exactly know what it means. They have a vague idea. So can you just fill us in on exactly what it means? Sure thing. So yeah, Juneteenth, especially in more like northern states, it's something a lot of us are learning about today. Um, Southern states, it's been around for a very long time. So Juneteenth, also known as Freedom Day or Emancipation Day, is a holiday that started to take place in Galveston, Texas in 1866. Um, And with that is a celebration of when slavery was officially abolished in the U.S. Um, Slavery has been around for over 400 years in the United States. And the way it worked was the Emancipation Proclamation that Abraham Lincoln signed was actually set in 1863. However, we didn't have Twitter and Facebook and all the other things to notify everyone at a second's notice. Cell phones weren't around back then? Yes, (laughs) yes. So all the southern states who had slaves had to basically Basically, be told by Union soldiers who would travel to the states and basically let them know this is the new law. Here's what we're doing. Your slaves are no longer slaves. They are free people of the country. And um, Galveston, Texas was the very last one on June 19th, 1865. And the holiday began after that. Uh, okay. So I was wondering why it was a couple of years after Lincoln mm-hmm. signed. And, you know, because it, it did, didn't make sense to me. It's like, why aren't we celebrating that date? You know? Yes. Um, so that's, I get it now. Okay. That makes yes. a lot more Very sense. Very much snail mail and it, its finest. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the next question leads to what's it mean to you personally? To me, it's... That's such a a hard question. I'll I'll try to sum it up in a a few sentences. But I think the most important thing it is to me is looking back on all the work 
and dedication and allyship that has gone in for equality and equity in this country. And we still have a lot of work to do. But even with the Emancipation Proclamation, that was just the beginning. A lot of people think it ended all slavery. And the truth is, it actually ended it in Confederate states. Union states who still had slaves, such as Kentucky, Virginia, all of those, were coming in later on. And that was a whole political move. But it was a big masterpiece of Abraham Lincoln's plan to abolish slavery across the country. And with Juneteenth, the celebrations brought hope. It created stories. It it really created community and started the cycle of healing that was very much needed. Um, so for it to continue to celebrate, most of the time it was through food celebrations, food festivals, and churches singing hymnals. Um, it slowly grew over the South. Even parts of Mexico celebrated it as well. Um, and then as the great migration of freed slaves coming up North, they brought it with them and really just celebrated this this big sign of hope. And it took a pause during uh, the uh, civil rights movement, uh, which obvious reasons, that was a very important thing to happen in the country. Um, and, but it's great that it's made a comeback because, again, it's just celebrating the work that's been done, you know, with my family in particular. You know, my grandma was a part of civil rights and her mother was a part of just trying to create healing you know she was a child of slavery and it, it's just really wild to think that it's not that many generations back for me um and to be inspired to continue that work today of creating more i'd say it's not so much the equality but a lot of the equity that's needed these days it's interesting too because you're you're actually a rare case where you know the history back to slave times of your family. A lot of mm-hmm. a lot of families don't. No, it's yeah. I, I have to thank my late uncle for that one. Uh before he passed away of uh, gosh, that was like around ten years ago, a little over ten years ago. He did a lot of work in studying our genealogy. I actually have like a six foot poster of our family oh, that's tree. Cool. Yeah. So he did a lot of that work for us. Um, but I am also very privileged that, you know, my grandma lived to 101, her brother lived to 103. So, and we were all big storytellers, hence I'm podcasting I hope you got your genes from that side of the family. (laughs) I know. I I joke all the time with Zach. I'm like, I'm going to have to get a second husband, a third husband by this rate. (laughs) That's funny. But... Well, yeah, it's it's just really remarkable to like tell those stories. And I encourage everyone, like ask your parents, ask your grandparents, everyone, like ask for all the fun stories. And it's then so what I say is, I add to that and say record them. Because yes. the one thing that I'm missing with my parents is hearing their voices. Because there's mm-hmm. very few things we have that are, because they died so long ago, there's very few things that we have that are recorded with their voices. Absolutely. It's if you can record it, it's fantastic. Right on your phone. I mean, <laughs> you know? There's services now too. Like you can document their stories in these books and you pay like a minimal fee if you're that lazy. But I mean, maybe lazy is not the right term. Maybe creative, creative solutions. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk. Uh, thank you for, for explaining that and for, for sharing that. We appreciate that. And yesterday was Father's Day. I got to meet your dad, who was a horse guy. Yeah. Uh, so you had, you had that privilege too. You, you got to grow up in a horse family and, and that's kind of neat because. Yeah. 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 I, I think I've. All, all the stories that we record on our podcast, like I find out like my story is actually quite 
rare of like, yeah, I was bored and there are 14, 15 horses outside. Like, I'm just kind of stuck with it. Yeah, now you're just making everybody mad. (laughs) (laughs) Until they realize no one hired help. Like, I didn't have grooves or any stable hands. Like, I did it all. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) At 12, when you'd rather not been cleaning stalls, you were cleaning stalls. Yes. <laughs> so let's talk about Retired Racehorse Radio. How's it going over there? You have a new host. How's it how's it I going do. since that? Oh, it's so fun. Kristen is I mean, she's just excellent. She is a great fit and we always do miss Jamie. We we talk about her all the time and but Kristen has really stepped up and has brought some really cool elements to the table. I love that she's from the Western background and I'm in English background. So we're both amateurs too. Like we don't have all the fancy equipment and we're, we're not pros. We're not, we're not Reese and Phillip. Like we dream, but we're not them. You know? <laughs> um, so it's, it's really cool to bring both perspectives, especially when we're talking about the horses that we are featuring each episode to see like, well, do you think this horse would be like working ranch? I'm like, well, I look at it and I see more of a hunter. It's like, it's really cool to, to be able to have that eye and, and difference in opinion. I do think you guys complement each other really well. Yeah. Plus she's hilarious. She is funny. Like, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, we're, we're trying to convince George to let us do some outtakes because some of the things that come out, like we're just, we're crying because we're laughing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for continuing to do that show. I think it's an important show here on the network. And thank you for, for joining me this morning and going over all of this. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And I, for anyone who hasn't listened, you definitely should take a listen. We're doing a new series called Making the Makeover. We're following four riders, two professional, two amateurs, as they're getting ready to go to the Thoroughbred Makeover in October. Um, it's been really fun. We've gotten a lot of positive reviews on it. So definitely take a listen. Well, it's always nice to have Joy on the show and to catch up with her. We appreciate her stopping by today. Well, the World Equestrian Center has it all. Plenty of restaurants with great food. I know, I've tried them all. State-of-the-art stabling, dozens of indoor and outdoor arenas, all with top-of-the-line footing. And the list just goes on. As for shows, this week, Arabian Region 13 Championships are going on all week long. And the Ocala Summer Series continues. It's nine weeks long in total. And they have top-level USEF and FEI jumpers, and hunters. WEC Ocala is a must-see for every equestrian, and you can find out what's going on at WEC at worldequestriancenter.com. And next up, we have Abe Morris, bull rider and owner of Cowboy Shootout Cookies. Well, Abe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me this morning. Now, most interviews with you probably start with your history as what you know as one of the first really successful African American bull riders and all of that. But I'm all about the food, so let's skip right to your cookies. Uh, so, <laughs> we have a guy that went from being a, one of the toughest guys in the country as a bull rider, all the way to making cookies and selling them now. So, uh, when did you d- discover you were a baker? Well, I after I graduated from college, I was, you know, I was single. I love chocolate chip cookies. My sister Janice used to bake them a lot when I was a kid growing up and you know, of course when you start baking cookies in the house, the smells waffle and we would just migrate to the kitchen and start stealing cookies. So after I graduated from college, I thought, man, I like chocolate chip cookies. I don't have anybody to bake them for me, so I just got a recipe and I started baking them and 
I just tweaked them and tweaked them and tweaked them over the years, and I have the final product now. You know what I heard in all of that, being a guy? I heard it was a way to pick up women, that if you brought them chocolate chip cookies, you were guaranteed to get a date. <laughs> I've tried. I'm still... Uh... I've kind of I'm still single right now. So uh, <laughs> anybody out there wants to latch on to me, I'm I'm fine with that. You I, know what I, that I, says? <laughs> you need to step up your cookie. Game. I know we need a different kind of cookie, maybe maybe some you know a different variety of cookie. Well, I have three varieties. I actually have four now. Do I you? just started baking another one. Yeah, just uh, actually yeah, even ten days ago, I just started baking a, another variety. So I'm going to add that to my list and. Everybody that's tested them, I kind of, you know, hand them out, and people like them. And so I'm going to have four different varieties now in What's the fourth? Okay, well, first it was just chocolate chips. Then it was chocolate chips with, I say pecan. I know a lot of people say pecan, but I say chocolate chips with pecan, pecans. Thank then you. Let me stop doing... you. I am from Georgia, and thank you for saying it the right way. It's a pecan. Okay, Go ahead. that's what I've been saying. I'm from New Jersey, but anyway, <laughs> then last year... I started baking a cinnamon snickerdoodle with white chocolate chips, oh, and people good. loved those. They raved over them. Oh, so. I'd marry you. Go ahead. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, and then just, uh, like I said, about a week ago, I went to a friend's house in Texas, and uh, I was down there for the, the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo, and they baked some chocolate chip cookies with pecans and... Uh, what else did they put in there? They put in oatmeal. And so I fell in love with them. She had a whole variety of cookies. And once I you know, tested those, she's like, well, help yourself to the other ones. I said, nope, this is all I want. I said, and then I told them, I said, I'm going to start baking these for myself. And they're like, we don't care. So I came home and I did it. So that's going to be my fourth variety now. You're like me, uh, because I often say that if you're stealing from me, you're stealing twice. And Abe, it sounds like you and I are just alike. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I told them up, up front. I said, uh, and they sent me the recipe too in the mail. And I, I really didn't even follow it. I just looked at it just to see what they used and I just used my basic core recipe, and all I did was just add the, you know, the pecans and the, the oatmeal, but I liked them. I loved them. And so I'm thinking if people like them as much as I like them or if people love them as much as I love them, you know, they're going to be a hit. So I'm going to have – and it's, it's kind of funny because when I first started doing cookies, I was pretty adamant that I was only going to stick to my two basics. But now I have four, and – the more that people tell me how much they enjoy it, I'm going to keep baking them all. So I'm going to have four really, really good variety of cookies now. Okay. Abe, have you ever heard of the show Nailed It? Because I think you should be on it. It's my favorite show. I never, I never have heard of it. And I, my son wanted me to go on Shark Tank years ago, but I said, you know, if I go on Shark Tank, they'll love the cookies, but, you know, they, there are numbers, and uh, they're a numbers group, and, and I don't have the the backing right now, I can say, well, okay, well, I go to these rodeos and I sell out, but they want more than that. But, I'll, you know, it's a step-by-step -step process. I'll get there slowly but surely, but I will make it, I'm going to say, to the top one of these days. All right, go where, look at yeah. Netflix and Nailed It, and you'll, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Go ahead. And Tyler. where can you find the cookies, okay. and then we'll go on to the rest of your incredible life, because <laughs> there's so oh, much okay. to talk about. I, I have a website, and I'm just... You know, when I first set up the website, the the guy, one of my coworkers set up the website, he put a counter on there and it gets hit, 
you know, almost, well, every day it goes up. And I'm like, wow. But I've looked at the numbers and he set the website up in like November, 2018. And the cookie website has over 22,600 hits. And the apemars.com has over 36,500 hits. And that's just a little over two years. But he told me that you can't just go on there and click, 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 click. He said, every time you get a hit, it's from a different IP address. So, um, I don't have a PayPal on my cookie website. And the reason why I've, I've gained enough publicity through just going to rodeos and being on television and all that, they would hammer me if I was to put a open. <laughs> so all you'd PayPal be doing is cooking. There. You'd be baking yeah, 24 hours a day. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to keep up. <laughs> well, I have a full time job. And so, and I work a lot of times, I work six days a week, and I don't want to bake every single Sunday because, number one, I wouldn't be able to keep up. And I don't want it to get to where it's, when it's no more fun, then I won't enjoy it. And I want to keep, you know, it's a passion right now. So I have to pace myself. And I do really well by myself. But I mean, I'll be honest. I do honestly know that I won't be super successful until I get a business partner. And, you know, that could be a girlfriend. That could be a significant (laughs) other. But I do need, I do need, I'm being honest. I need someone to physically help me bake and market these cookies. Okay, ladies. To that point. He's mentioned (laughs) it a couple times now. It's CowboyShootoutCookies.com. What the heck? Does a guy from New Jersey decide he wants to get on a bull? How does that happen? Uh, you said, okay, said that you said a guy from New Jersey decides he wants to to ride a bull. How does a good oh, okay. kid from New Jersey go? I, I think I just want to ride a bull. That that's not something you hear a lot. Okay, it didn't happen like that, and it wasn't overnight. What happened was I was a I lived in New Jersey, and my I have four older cousins, and they lived like 200, 150 yards away from a, a rodeo arena. It was in, it's called Cowtown Rodeo, and it's in Woodstown, oh, yeah. New Jersey. And That's a popular my one. Dad sent, yeah, yeah, my dad sent me there to stay with my cousins for the whole summer before I ever went to kindergarten. So I was only like five years old, and I stayed with those guys for like four, about three months in the summer. And they were into it. They were riding horses and ponies and calves and stuff like that. And they just, they worked on me. I say, you know, they bribed me. You know, they tell me to get on stuff and I wouldn't. So they would say, okay, we'll give you a candy bar. We'll give you a soda. You know, we'll give you 25 cents, you know, stuff like that. And over the course of the summer, you know, I finally agreed that I wanted to, to be like my cousins because they were my heroes. So they looked out for me. They were my coaches. They wouldn't let me get on anything that would hurt me. And it just one thing led to another. So that's how I, I started. But at first, I had, I didn't want to be a cowboy. I can tell you that right now. I, there was no way. What did you want to be? You oh. went to college, and you got a business degree and all of that. But what what did you want to be before you ended up a cowboy? Uh, I thought I was going to be a NFL football player because I was pretty fast. I mean, I was all through you know school years. Whenever we had races, nobody could outrun me. And uh, I thought maybe I'd like to go to the NFL and play football and stuff like that. But I never got to be big enough to be a running back. But I was always fast. And whenever, you know, I did play football. I mean, I, you know, I set a record like 30 years ago when I played football. And to this day, it still hasn't been broken. It was a record for a kickoff return yardage. And nobody's ever broke my record. But, I mean, I didn't think it would be... 
didn't think it would last this long, but I honestly don't know if anybody ever will break it. I was pretty fast, and they, my teammates used to tease me and tell me the reason why I was so fast is because I was so used to running away from all those bulls. <laughs> well, you know, you do. Uh, speaking of broken, you pick two things: bull riding and football that do break bones and beat up your body really good. Oh yeah, I mean, in, in bull riding, we always said. I mean, we learned too. It was, uh, it's not if you get hurt, because all of us have been hurt seriously. But it's 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 not if you get hurt; it's when. Yeah, that's and true. Of horseback bad. riding, period. Right? We're all gonna get. We all get hurt at some point in life. Uh, you know, it's just the nature of what we do. Were there a lot of African Americans riding bull when you started? Not really. There was a group of guys just that lived in Woodstown that kind of, you know, a friend thing, you know, like there was, like I said, there was three of them, like, well, there's four cousins, but three of them competed in rodeo. They were the walkers. It was Gene, Jimmy Lee, Willie Ed, and their, their mom and my dad are sister and brother. So basically, you know, my, their, their mom's maiden name was Morris. And so, you know, it was just a group of us that got started. And then some of our friends got started and, you know, I, I ended up writing a book, and we took a group photo. Uh, I think it was in the 70s. We took a group photo. There was about 10 to 12 of us in that group photo. We were all competing in rodeo. So, But I haven't met very many. I mean, I have met other black cowboys throughout the nation, but you know, when I retired from bull riding, I thought that rodeo was going to grow, grow, grow as far as the black cowboys. But as far as I'm concerned now, it seems like there's less african-american black cowboys involved in rodeo than there was when i retired were you treated with any kind of respect back then this was the 60s and 70s right uh was was that the era i'd say probably the 70s okay. more was when i i went to college in the mid 70s and mm. when i showed up at the university of wyoming the guys teased me they didn't tease me out of you know like i had t-shirts and stuff like that that said rodeo and these guys didn't believe me. They said there's no such thing as a black cowboy. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, there was a football. Oh, yeah, they, they, a couple guys. It was just a couple guys. But this one guy, you know, one day I showed him my photo album, and, and he was on the football team. And once I showed him my album, he just cursed up a storm. Look at this, blank, blank, blank. And he told the whole football team. And then after that, these guys were reaching out to me. I'd be sitting in the cafeteria eating and, big old football player would walk up to me, hey, man, I want to shake your hand. I've never met a black cowboy before. So they were my my best, uh, you know, my fans after that because the rodeo was right on campus, and they'd come over and, and cheer me on and stuff like that. So it was great. I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I, I was kind of a quiet little skinny guy from New Jersey, but once they found out I rode bulls and, and I started doing well, like in, let me think what year it was, 78. I think I won the college rodeo right there at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. And I had a big write-up just the day before the rodeo that said I was this superstar rodeo bull rider. But it wasn't true because I hadn't really done anything. But, you know, then I turned out and I won the bull ride. So I lived up to the status of that article. <laughs> so and then you you actually retired from rodeo and went on to be announcer for a for a lot of years, and as I said, you were one of the first uh, Afri African American announcers too, right in the rodeo world. Yeah, there were other African American announcers. They announced just you know the black rodeos, but as far as the PRCA, which is the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association, and they're based in Colorado Springs. I am the first 
black announcer that was certified to announce you know professional rodeos. So they'll never take that away from me. I was the first the first black announcer. I announced Cheyenne Frontier Days for eight years for it was actually Prime Sports Network, and then it became Fox Sports. Yeah. But I did it as a commentator for eight eight consecutive years. The first year I did it was 1989, and that was when Lane Frost got killed. And I, I was the last person to ever interview him on camera. I was still competing, and I broke down. I cried like a little baby. Did you, did you get out of riding just because your body was breaking down, or mentally you needed to stop? What was it? Both. I was getting older, and I knew I couldn't take it anymore. And there's a saying amongst rodeo people. They say the ground the ground didn't get harder. It's just, uh, yeah. well, they basically say, you know, yeah, that's a little saying about that. They talk about, yeah, I just, uh, they said, I didn't quit, or I just, you know, whatever. But they said that ground just started getting too hard. That's what it boiled down to. Yeah, and you get to our age, we don't bounce as well either. You, you do bounce no. more when you're younger. It's true. It's... That's true. And, you, and it takes longer to heal. So, yeah, yeah it was both. I was, I was about ready to quit, and then I, bull hit me, and they thought I fractured my hip, but they couldn't find any breaks. But I couldn't walk. I mean, I had to learn to walk all over again. I could not walk. I was on crutches for about six weeks, and my hip would pop really, really loud for about three or four months. But that was what took me out. And after that, I said, okay, this guy told me, he was a friend of mine. He told me, he said, look, you've gone about as far as you can go. He said, if you ever get hurt and injured that hip again, he said, if you think it hurt the first time, wait till you do it again. But he said, you've gone about as far as you can go. And he said, he said, it takes a braver man to walk away from the sport than it does to come back and do it again. And, and I, Took his advice. I quit. I never got on another bull. Yeah, in, in those days, you weren't making the money that the, some of these guys are making big bucks right now on the rodeo circuit. And, you know, there wasn't that kind of money back then, was there? I mean, you weren't driving million-dollar motorhomes. No, and we didn't have the sponsors either that these guys do. I mean, you look at the rodeo guys now, and they're, they wear shirts, and they're all decorated like NASCAR. They have sponsor logos all over their shirts, but no— Towards the end of my career, a few guys got sponsors, but they were few and far between. But no, we didn't have the money. I mean, like when I was competing, there was a thing called Bull Riders Only. That lasted for a few years. And after that, the uh, PBR started, Professional Bull Riders started. And yeah, they make mega bucks. Like the guy that wins the PBR now wins a million dollars for the whole year. And they get to fly around and compete on the weekends. And then, you know, they can go to an event and win. Thirty thousand dollars in one weekend. I mean, you know, most Americans don't even make that in a whole year. Right. Yeah, you're, you're right, and I know I mean, it has changed. And you, you do see these guys in their rigs sometimes, and you realize, hmm, there's money in that. <laughs> like, oh yeah, there's money now, and then they have sponsors, and then you go with the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo too. Those guys win a lot of money. I think the guy that won the all around this year, Stetson Wright, won over three hundred thousand dollars plus, and he has lots of sponsors, and he has brothers, and their whole family is. They're all very talented, road, you know, rodeo guys. There's world champions all throughout their family. It's the right family. They're from uh, Utah, the, and they love my cookies too. <laughs> you wrote a <laughs> they, they love them. You wrote a couple books. My cowboy hat still fits, and Humps and Horns Bull Riding Magazine. You've written for them, a column for them for a number of years. You also wrote another book, Justin: A Father's Flight for His Son. Are the books still available? Are they still in print? Yeah, they're still available. They're still in print. I've sold. Believe it or not, I'm going to write one more book. I saw that you have one more. We'll, we'll end on that. What's the next book you want to write? It's going to be. It's going to incorporate everything. Just about you know being beat up, being down, being out, being a 
black rodeo cowboy and now having a, a, a cookie business that's going to flourish long after I'm dead and gone. And on that, we're going to end it. It's CowboyShootoutCookies.com. Uh, it's where you can find it. You can, uh, we'll also put links to your books. If somebody wants to catch one of the books, we'll put that uh, in there as well. So thank you, Abe. We appreciate you stopping by. Cosequin ASU joint and hoof pellets contain quality ingredients to support joint and hoof health and leave out all the fillers, molasses, and alfalfa, all while delivering the taste horses love. The colors of our ingredients shine through for a difference you can see. Visit CosequinEquine.com. Coming up next, we're heading to Lexington, Kentucky. Jamie and I go to Lexington a lot. I live there. I uh, lived in Lexington, Kentucky for four or five years. And one of our favorite places to go was Keeneland. Of course, it's the legendary, uh, very historic and most beautiful racetrack in the United States. Uh, and one of the things that if you're regular there or if you know about it, you check out the Keeneland Library, which has to be one of the coolest places around. Uh, they have, it's just an amazing thing that's tucked over there at Keeneland. And today we have the head librarian. Her name is Rhoda Ferraro. Hi, Rhoda. Hi there. I got to tell you, it is so exciting to have you on. Tell us a little bit about the library. Yes. Well, thank you for having me. Um, The library is the world's largest repository for information, images uh, related to the thoroughbred industry. So researchers from around the world, um, whether they are turf writers or academics um, or historians or economists, this is where um, folks who are doing research or need images to support their narratives of really any theme, person, place, horse that you can dream up of in this industry's history, this is where folks come to do that research. So. I remember the, the walking in the depth this, and the breadth of the collections is it's really extensive. I remember walking into it for the first time. There's like thirty thousand books there. I mean, it's yeah, it's it far more crazy. than that, and um, you know, far more than a million photographic negatives and prints. And um, and you know, if we talk newsprint um, in industry journals or magazines, you know, millions and millions of, of pages of those periodicals. So yeah, like I said, very extensive holdings. Well, all right. So te- oh, with with yeah. that, I got to ask, what what does a day in the life look like for Rhoda? But like, do you what do you what do you do? Are you like searching microfiche all the time? Like, how's it work? Yes. OK, so most of our holdings here are still in print. Um, so uh, which is would be the case with a lot of special collections libraries like this. So a day in the life is never what you expect when you walk in the door. Um, you're fielding, um, you know, it, thousands of research requests a year from folks who never enter the building. Um, They're folks that either are new to using the library or veterans when it comes to library use. So they reach out to us um, regardless of where they live. um, And we, we work with them to understand what it is that they're researching, why their target audience. um, And we do research on their behalf and kind of scan on demand and send it their way. Um, so much of our day um, is comprised by that. We also host exhibits, um, which we'll talk about our newest exhibits soon, educational programs, outreach initiatives, 
a lot of preservation and conservation work, lecture series, events out in the community. Uh, so it really is a mixed bag. And she doesn't have to deal with teenage kids coming in all the time, which is perfect. <laughs> well, well, I do actually. Do you? <laughs> well, with field trip experiences tied to this exhibit. So, yes, we're hosting middle school and high school students uh, with this exhibit. So, Well, talk, talk about the exhibit that you have going on right now. Yes. Yeah, so we have um, really something that we are so very pleased to share with the public. I mean, this is the facility that folks have used for decades. Um, you know, if anyone is doing research on Black horsemen, on Black horsewomen, um, and opportunities, biographies, um, political shifts over time, if they need images, say, to support a book, an article, a documentary exhibit, this is where they've come to do their work. So for years, we've been connecting people to the resources that they need. Um, but but just this year, the stars aligned and we were able to get the resources to host our own exhibit. Um, so our current exhibit is called The Heart of the Turf, Racing's Black Pioneers. Um, we opened in February. Uh, we um, do a pretty deep dish exploration of the life and work contributions of 80 African-Americans. Um, covering more than 150 years of racing's history. Um, so from the period of enslavement to today. Um, the exhibit also um, showcases, or at least for some folks, maybe draws attention for the very first time as to why it is. What are some of the, the reasons historically, economically, that Lexington um, has been such a hub for Black horsemen? Uh, and a lot of that is tied to the history of the Kentucky Association track that was founded in 1826 in Lexington's East End. Um, it was a premier facility of the time, the, the country's oldest turf organization, only the second track in the country that had a mile-long oval dirt course. So it was really state-of-the-art. And that was um, near downtown? Yes, in Lexington's East End. Um, and, you know, this would have been premier races of the day. Uh, the horse farms in the area, whether they were breeding, racing, or both, um, until slavery was abolished in 1865. So we've got 40-year history at that track um, with Black horsemen that have a presence at that track um, as jockeys, trainers, backside workers, foremen for the horse farms in the area. So that that labor Again, whether it was breeding or racing, um, from stable boys to foremen, would have been um, performed by enslaved Black men. So what we had then, um, when slavery was abolished in Lexington, was this premier track that really didn't have a lot of competition yet. I mean, this is, you know, they had many decades of total monopoly um, on racing in the state. There was no Churchill. There was no Latonia racetrack. Um, the Red Mile wasn't there yet either, right? Was, yes, yes, no. So this was it. This is where folks went. And the the, the best of the best uh, stables um, would have had their horses trained, um, ridden, grooms, 24-7 care, uh, the farriers by enslaved Black men. So slavery is abolished in 1865. We have this premier racing facility right in Lexington's East End. The surrounding land around that track was identified um, to uh, be purchased and sold off into smaller plots for homes for recently freed slaves. 
and their families. So we now have a, a few decades um, that really laid the foundation for a very vibrant community in Lexington's East End that still exists today. But at that time when it was new, racing was it. So we're not talking, um, you know, 15, 20 black horsemen and their families that lived in like in Lexington's East End. We're talking hundreds and four future racing hall of famers lived within blocks of each other in Lexington's East End around that track. So I don't know of another sport that kind of, um, has a scenario like that, you know, where they've got four of their, their hall of famers just living, um, in that same neighborhood. So a lot of, a lot of, um, moments in history that kind of led to that development. Um, and the horsemen, um, in the bluegrass uh, had a lot of opportunity, uh, in the late 1800s. Um, this really would have been the era of the megastar black jockeys, the extremely successful, uh, black owners, trainers, very lucrative positions, very much in the public eye. There was no other competition for people's entertainment dollar. Uh, racing was it. Um, and that was, uh, and those types of opportunities were available to them for about 25, 30 years before Jim Crow laws um, really began to take hold, have traction. And, you know, a lot of those very positions uh, were just no longer an option for folks. Um, well, so that's, that's when things really began to change. And, you know, a lot of folks continue to stay uh, and work in the industry that they knew. Um, it would have just it tended to be in more behind the scenes roles. Um, a lot of folks took a shot at racing overseas. Um, and as we know, many of them, um, like in the case of Jimmy Wingfelt, met tremendous, tremendous success, um, you know, taking that skill overseas where he didn't have those systemic um, systems of discrimination uh, that, that really inhibited his ability to get mounts. Um, so. I know uh, there's a new book out about Isaac uh, Murphy, and yes. we're going to get the author on here in the next couple of weeks. She's coming on to talk about that book. Uh, yes, but, and, and we're going to host her for a lecture in May. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I'm excited to hear about that and actually to read that book. I'm really excited about that. Yes, you know, I've learned fantastic. more about the place I used to live with you in 15 minutes than I've known about it the whole time. And Jamie used to ride at Keeneland. Um, she, oh, really? Yeah. She was an exercise yes. rider. Yeah. Back when I was young and crazy and thought getting on a horse and galloping 35 miles an hour with tiny short stirrups was a good idea. <laughs> well, when you all come back, you make sure to reach out. Well, um, but, you know, well, and, and we'll give you a nice tour. Well, that, that sounds fantastic. That. That'd be so cool. So I mm-hmm. want to clarify something. So this, mm-hmm. this uh, Kentucky Association track, the one near downtown, mm-hmm. and a lot yes. of people may not know that back in the 1700s, even going further back than, than this, the mm-hmm. races used to happen in town down Main Street. Um, yes, they did. R- racing was mm-hmm. a big thing in Philadelphia, and no, st- and it was right mm-hmm. through town. Again, you didn't have Macadam; you had dirt roads. So, right. you know, they used to race through town. It was a big thing. Everybody came out to watch the races. Uh, I think it's a little different than it is now, but uh, there was probably still mm-hmm. a lot of betting going on. <laughs> but there was, yeah, yeah. and we had that in Kentucky as well. I mean, there was never not a, an option. Um, there was just a brief period of time between 1933 and 1936. So in 1933, the Kentucky Association tracked after a more than 100 year. It closed after a more than 100 year history. 
And then three years later, 1936, Keeneland opens. Um, so since Lexington was founded, whether they were racing on what is now South Broadway and quarter mile heats, um, the folks of this community found ways to race their horses and bet on that. And also when a lot of other, um, by a lot of other, I mean the vast majority of tracks across the country were hit hard by anti, anti um, gambling legislation at the turn of the 20th century. Kentucky and Maryland were the only two states east of the Mississippi that weren't hit by that. So you could still legally bet on a horse. So that Kentucky Association track continued to have a different type of monopoly. So, you know, once those anti-gambling legislation laws hit the books in most states, Churchill and Latonia and other tracks were in Kentucky, but all of these other tracks in the east had shut down um, either permanently or temporarily. So the Kentucky Association really did have um, a rich history. I'll, and you know um, what else? During Prohibition, I bet you there was still some moonshine to be had at those races in Kentucky. No. I would, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> you know, the, the folks that we're featuring in this exhibit are very much um, a presence in the present. Um, so the intent of this exhibit is just to share these stories. Um, and there are so many reasons why we share stories. And we share stories to inform. We share stories to just enlighten. But we also share stories to inform today's decisions. So, um, you know, we uh, spotlight workforce development issues um, that are are local um, in the area uh, with primary missions to uh, provide hands-on experience, internships and practicums um, for people of color looking for work in this industry, regardless of the role that they want to play. And that's something else that's super special about this exhibit is that we had thousands upon thousands of people to potentially choose to highlight over a nearly 200-year history, and we chose 80. Well, a lot of the decision-making behind how we arrived at that 80 is we really wanted to showcase the variety of roles, you know, from farriers and grooms, to hot walkers to, you know, some of the wealthiest people in the South that trained and owned um, in the late 1800s to the superstar jockeys of the past and the superstar jockeys of today, like Deshaun Parker, one of 20, uh, only uh, um, 20 other jockeys in North American history to surpass 6,000 career wins last year, or Kendrick Carmouche, the son and grandson of jockeys. So we definitely see this continuum, this multi-generational um, skills, knowledge base passed on. Um, I mean, it really is fascinating. There's so many people that we spotlight now that have other family members, whether it was a generation ago or four generations ago, spotlighted in this exhibit, all right here in the bluegrass. Um, and we do touch upon the lives of, of folks from other areas as well. Um, but since there was so much in the way of history that led to Lexington being a hub for Black horsemen, um, and eventually in the 20th century, horsewomen, it, we definitely wanted to showcase those those. Uh, folks as well with all those tie-ins to local history. So how can people see this? Where, where do they go? Where can they find out details and hours and all that stuff? Yeah, so the exhibit is free and open to the public um, during the library's normal hours, Monday through Friday, 8.30 to 4.30. The library is up on the hill. We share a parking lot with the Entertainment Center here at Keeneland. Um, if, if you are interested in scheduling an exhibit educational program uh, for 5th to 12th graders, you would email me um, 
at uh, rferraro at caneland.com. This information is available on the Caneland Library's website. And if you are looking to schedule after hours or weekend tours for a group of adults, you know, whether you're in the industry or not, um, please feel free to reach out to me as well. Those are tours um, with guided Q&As that, that we are offering on evenings and weekends very regularly. So a lot of options for folks. Very good. Well, thank you for being with us. We really appreciate it. And thank you for talking about, well, first of all, educating us on the history, which I didn't know most of, and also for talking about one of our favorite places in Kentucky. This podcast is sponsored by Purina Animal Nutrition with three research-backed ration balancers to fill nutritional gaps in your horse's diet. And Rich Plus delivers a concentrated source of protein, vitamins, and minerals without unnecessary calories. And Rich Plus Senior features active age probiotic technology and Outlast supplement for aging easy keepers. Omega Match is rich in omega-3 fatty acids and vitamin E, great for horses without access to grass. Find a ration balancer for your horse at PurinaMills.com slash ration balancers or visit your local feed store. We only have a couple of minutes. Uh, do you have time for your list or you want to you do something Yeah, we else? can do this because I've got to zip through it because this is so cool. It's 22. I hope Chad's not listening because uh, he might be getting some things on this list. I don't know. Because... I looked at the list. I really don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> this list comes from the Huffington Post and it's 22 weird Father's Day gifts. Is that, that this your... weekend? Yeah, it's Sunday. Oh, okay. Your dad wants more than what you're actually going to give him. So basically, they're like, return the crap you bought. He doesn't want to tie and get him something like this. By the okay, way, the f- we don't wear ties anymore. Just throwing that out there. Most you of us don't. do not. No. Your well, husband does, airline, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. But does he have a, like, a, a regular tie? He has to wear like a formal uh, uniform tie? Yes, but at Christmas, he got to wear a Santa tie. <laughs> <laughs> that man has gone to work every day of his life in a uniform. It just, it, it, it makes God. no sense to me. Last time um, I tied a tie was on the cruise on formal night, and it took me like 45 attempts to remember how to tie the tie. Jennifer's like, turn around, I know how to do a, <laughs> a, a, a you know, a Western saddle. <laughs> That's how I do think about the ties. <laughs> tie like a Western saddle. Um, merman tail. Would a your what? dad like to make a big splash this summer? <laughs> it's a merman tail. Wear that around the pool. There's a picture of a guy in a mermaid tail. Oh my God. It's a merman tail, Glenn. It is like <laughs> from his waist all the way down to his flippers. And um, yeah, that'd be sure divorce. If you're looking at getting rid of your horse husband, uh, who's also a father, buy him one of those. Okay, this next one is fantastic. It's luggage that you can put their face on. So <laughs> it's airport luggage. Tra- you know, if you're at the airport luggage terminal and you're trying to get your bag, uh, there's going to be um, a bag coming around and there's no mistaking whose it is. And the thing is people have done is take really embarrassing photos and put them like there's a guy sleeping in a chair with his <laughs> mouth open, like catching flies. And that's the photo that they put. Nobody's going to be stealing this luggage. That's for damn sure. <laughs> no. Next one is earbuds, but they make your ears look like Vulcan ears. I mean, who doesn't <laughs> want to look like Mr. Spock? <laughs> There's a um, stretchy Donald Trump doll. Anybody? <laughs> Did your dad want this more than uh, Jean-Luc Picard? Uh, face palm sculpture. Is anybody really into like the Star Trek stuff? Uh, there's a beef jerky bouquet. 
It looks like a bouquet of flowers, but <laughs> it's all dead. It's cow. beef jerky. <laughs> <laughs> it's wrapped up. Uh, uh, it does not, by the way, it kind of looks like flowers. It is not attractive looking. No, it's no. it's brown and pretty gnarly looking. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is a Joe Namath action figure, and they clearly state that it's not a doll. <laughs> <laughs> is he in tights? Only old people no. remember that. Uh, he, he looks like he's wearing um, a tracksuit. What is the no. thing over his shoulders? Those are not shoulder pads. I don't. It looks like those things that you put on when you're having a heart attack, and it goes. Pshht. That's what it looks like. I don't know what that's. Well, about. if it is shoulder pads, they've really got it wrong because they're supposed to go under. Yeah, the they're more like boot pads in this case. I don't. Oh my <laughs> god! I need to have this. The next one is a taco. When I make tacos here at the house, Lucas has a taco. We call it the taco ceratops, and it's like a triceratops, and it has slots in its back for oh, tacos. Oh, so the taco doesn't fall over? <laughs> yes, yeah. and this is a unicorn taco holder. <laughs> Instead of the taco ceratops, it's the unicorn taco holder. Uh, it looks like a My Little right Pony unicorn taco holder is what it looks like. Uh, here's the here's the the part they didn't really plan for is it's actually real plastic hair on it, and that's going to get, get in, in your, your taco. taco. Yeah, how are you going to wash that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, the taco ceratops does not have any fake hair. I do not want this, by the way. I'm not a yes, dad, but I do not want this. Okay. Yes, you do. It's a tuxedo onesie. And if you, no, I mean, it I says party and it says formal all together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Here's the description. Who said style and comfort were mutually exclusive? Not the person who decided to make this tuxedo onesie. Doing the bare minimum never felt so classy. Let me look how much this thing costs. Fifty nine ninety five for the tuxedo Shh. jumpsuit. <laughs> I mean, come on. Why wouldn't you want oh. that? Do you know how much tuxedos are? It's oh, By the way, the website where you can buy this is tipsyelves.com. My right. guess is we could do a whole show just looking through the products at tipsyelves.com. That's oh, my guess. That sounds great. Now, I'm going <laughs> to wrap it up with this one, our last one, because it's horsey. A jar of preserved horse poop. Why? Each jar has one little fecal ball in it. And Why? let me point out that this is from, for those race fans, Silver Charm. Silver Charm! The famous racehorse Silver Charm who uh, was in the Derby in 97. And I mean, come on. You need a silver charm fecal ball in a jar for Father's Day, right? <sighs> Why did we come up with this idea? I could have sold scooter poop and you could have sold, sold Zeus poop and we could have made a fortune. Um, except our horses didn't win the Derby. Oh, yeah, but they're very <laughs> popular, very popular horses. The thing is, no horse pe person's going to actually buy horse poop. No, so we're the no. wrong audience for this. So why would how much yeah. are they asking for this? Let me look that up. <laughs> yeah, click on that. Okay. Um, um. So the horse poop is going to cost you. There's no price on it. Um. I don't see a price. I mean, he's like. It's like it's like, it's like it is free. It's like it's free because they realize what's the point. Nobody's going to buy that. Oh, hey, wait a minute! I found the online shop. $200. <gasps> Stop it. Preserved Kentucky Derby horse turd. Uh, $200. That 
cannot be. Okay, well, I'm going to end on that one. Because no thing is going to do. Babe, do you want a $200 piece of horse poop from Silver Charm, who won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness and just lost by a nose for the Belmont? Uh, he said if he would have won the Belmont, he'd have taken it, but no. <laughs> All right, let's go on. We have to we have to we have to move on here. All right, so we're going to I um we're going to now here I'm seeing if we have time for this or if we're going to have to rearrange the show a bit. Uh so let's do this. Um I don't want to go to Dr. Jones late. So let's do let's do our chicory wealth after Dr. Jones before we get to before we get to Stanford. Let's do it okay. that way. You have some weird news for us, right? I do, I do. So let's do it that way. Let's do weird news next, and then uh, we'll just rearrange the show here a bit, because we went a little long talking about preserved $200 horse poop. And you need... Yeah, I mean, get started. I'm trying. All right. Well, the beaches are opening up in Texas, and uh, despite... Uh, coronavirus the beaches have been opened and there was a big part it's an annual thing and it's called the go topless jeep weekend what could possibly go wrong in a weekend on the beach with a bunch of people who've been, been locked there in for their houses <laughs> been locked in their houses for two months glenn i have not made it to the go topless jeep weekend but apparently it was a little crazier than normal there was at least 180 people arrested <laughs> at oh the God. Go Topless Beach Weekend. Beachgoer Chelsea Coyer told Galveston affiliate affiliate KBMT in a news report, we've been in quarantine and like, I needed to get out and party. <laughs> um, Coyer claimed she was taking precautions to keep from getting the coronavirus by washing her hands for 20 seconds. But the station captured video of the event <clears throat> this is the actual news thing. The station video of the event captured lots of people twerking without masks. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like it should be a t-shirt. <laughs> I'm going to continue down and skip through this. Who wrote this? They need to be fired because this is the, this is a paragraph. All told, more than 180 attendees were taken into custody for numerous unrelated crimes. Two people were shot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also people were arrested. Uh, the, the, the unrelated crimes, they also included assault. Now, remember, people have been shot, assaulted. The next thing that they list is driving without wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> <laughs> driving while intoxicated in public drunkenness. Um, <laughs> only 80 people are, were arrested in 2019. So they have stepped up their game. Um, well, you and, know, I got to go back to the twerkers because to be honest, there's no proof that you get it from that end. So I think you're good. Mm, you can, cause tw twerking, you're not face to face. No, right? no, that's correct. See, that's I why like, I think you're safe that way. What news organization uses the word like twerking as a verb. I mean, that's not a verb. Like they were twerking without masks. I think that is without a t-shirt. We could make a fortune, $200 each. Throw in some horse poop, throw in some, some scooter poop. poop. We're, we're we'll good to go. All right. We're leaving uh, Texas and now we're going to head to Fort Myers, Florida, because there was a problem in Fort Myers, Florida. 
Um, a juvenile 250 pound black bear spent a good portion of Tuesday morning, just walking around the Gulf coast city. Wildlife officials say bears tend to move more in the spring in search of mates and, you know, food. Uh, so apparently it's a very congested area and tranquilizing the bear wasn't an option. And the drugs don't always work immediately on large animals such as bears. So he says the, the police official or wildlife official says when we tranquilize the bear, sometimes they'll run away. We don't want to take any chance of it running into traffic or a residential area. So how did they catch the bear, Glenn? What did they do? I don't they know. Tra- they went to Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> <laughs> and they basically, you know, where in the movie E.T. where they, he yes, follows the Reese's yes. Pieces. They kept they dropping went, donuts. <laughs> they kept dropping pieces of a donut, do, Krispy Kreme donuts, and to a trap. And they got him to come into the trap by following Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> You're welcome, people. Donuts are out there. I would have to have Duncan, though. I'm not a Krispy Kreme fan. I would have had to have Duncan, too. Follow that trail. Myself. I think that um, a bear is going to follow any sort of sugary <laughs> yeah, fried that's bread. True. That is true. I don't think they're going to have a problem. <laughs> that is true. Do you have one? I have time for one more. You have one more? I, I got more. I got more. One more. I mean, you get to choose. Do you want boy six cracks open robbery case by reeling in sunken safe from the lake? Or do you want man fake wife, man faked wife's disappearance so she'd avoid prison? Uh, I got to go with the safe. I want to see what was in it. Oh, the, the, no, no, no. You've chose the wrong one because <laughs> basically it's all in there. And he found like some, it was like some joy. They didn't crack anything. It was just a lady's safe. She had been robbed. Oh. <laughs> and then he is a magnet fishing. Apparently that's a thing. Magnet fishing in a South Carolina lake. And he caught the box. They brought it up and it was some credit cards and some old jewelry. Oh, and that's all. So oh, she, and a checkbook. So right. apparently well, let's somebody go with stole the other story business. now that you've okay. told that one. Yeah, that's what that's what I was gonna do anyway. Um, man <laughs> faked wife's disappearance so she'd avoid prison. This is in you're gonna be shocked. West Virginia. We're gonna move to West Virginia. A West Virginia woman and her husband faked her disappearance by pretending she plummeted from an overlook as part of a scheme to keep her out of having to go to prison. Julie Wheeler and Rodney Wheeler were arrested Tuesday on multiple charges, including conspiracy and giving false information. Uh, she was reported missing Sunday by her husband and their 17-year-old son. The family claimed that Julie had fallen from the main overlook at the New River Gorge National River, and um, apparently authorities searched for her for days, and they found her Tuesday alive and well hiding in a closet in her home. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't work real hard at it, did they? (laughs) I do want to tell you what she was getting arrested for originally that decided to... Oh, by the way, they did work hard. Apparently, they threw some of her items, her belongings, over the, the ledge. Apparently... Rodney Wheeler and his son planted items at the Grandview Overlook to fake her disappearance. (laughs) So apparently she was selling uh, pills illegally. (laughs) She was in a pill mill. They call those pill mills in West Virginia. She was in a pill mill. (laughs) So uh, she's now she's in jail. Yeah. They they found her in the closet. She didn't go far. (laughs) I'm like, they found her. She was in her house, <laughs> hiding in the closet <laughs> like a coward. <laughs> there you go. That's it. 